Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on, as you might have guessed, as we go ahead and work our way through the Gospel of John. The, uh, we're going to go ahead and finish up chapter 5 today. And if you remember the last couple weeks as we've gone through it, Jesus has made some pretty incredible claims in this chapter. Now, if you think about this, like we, we, we look back and we're like, oh, well, it's Jesus. Of course, he's going to make incredible claims. But you've got to imagine these people, they're just coming to grips with this is the Messiah. This, as far as they know, this is just Joseph from Nazareth, some guy who's a carpenter. And he's making some pretty awesome claims. First, in uh, chapter, five, eight, or chapter 5, verse 18, he claimed to be God, to be equal with God. In verse 18, it says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself to be equal with God. That's a pretty incredible claim. He also claimed to give life to everyone who hears and believes his words. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's a pretty incredible claim. In John 5, 26, he claimed that he was actually the source of life. John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And then he claimed to be able to give judgment for sin, John 5, 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now all of these things are pretty incredible claims, and really they're only claims that God can make at the time. And so now we have this man who's walking the earth, and he's making these claims. Now today... If we were to have somebody come up to us and start making these claims to us, we would immediately think they're crazy. They're a little bonkers. They're a little off the rocker. We need to, you know, we need to figure out what's going on with them. If they were to make those claims today, we'd want, to, want them to get some psychological help because they're obviously not okay. They need some help to make these kind of claims. Well, the truth is it wouldn't have been so different back then to have somebody making these claims as well. The only difference is, is back then, they're probably not, that for these particular claims, right, making themselves equal with God, they're not, they're not looking to get him some psychological help. They're looking for stones to start chucking at him because these things are, these claims are worthy of death, amen? Matter of fact, these very claims are what ultimately puts Jesus on the cross. But Jesus doesn't make these claims in a vacuum. Jesus doesn't make these claims without any evidence. And that's actually what we're going to look at today is Jesus gives actually five witnesses to verify his claims. The first one we're going to talk about is, is John the Baptist. The second one we're going to talk about is his own works, right? The, the things that he did. Uh, John, uh, the, the, the Apostle John refers to all of Jesus' miracles as signs because they were a signpost pointing to Jesus. They were evidence for his claims. Then we're going to look at God's own testimony about Jesus. Then we're going to look at the scriptures. And then finally, Moses will be the five witnesses that Jesus presents today to, to give evidence for his claims that he's been making. So the first one we're going to look at today is John uh, chapter 5, verse 30, and it says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this verse here is kind of used as a transition from the section that Jesus was just talking about into this one. And actually, as I was studying and I was reading this, I was like, you know what? This probably would have been better buttoned up on the end of last week instead of the beginning of this week. But 
it is what it is, and we're not going to just skip a verse because it doesn't fit with the theme of today's message, so we'll go through it as well. And like I said, it's kind of a transition, and it's really used to button up his last section that, that Joseph preached last week. It's actually the, the beginning phrase of what Joseph, Joseph preached on last week was John 5.19. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And then he buttons it up here again. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's the same theme here. What he's doing is not of his own purpose, his own will, but it's actually the will of the Father. So Jesus' judgment, along with every single thing else that he does, is the express will of the Father. Jesus doesn't do anything that's not the will of the Father. And this is why I like to say that Jesus is perfect theology. Whatever Jesus does, we know that's the will of the Father. So when Jesus heals every single person that comes to him, he doesn't say, nope, you need to do this, or nope, you're too sinful, or, or nope, you need to be older, or nope, you need to be in church more. He doesn't say any of those things. Everyone that comes to Jesus, he heals. So we know that it's God's will to heal people. When we see judge, uh, Jesus judging, or I'm sorry, Jesus extending love and grace to sinners and to tax collectors, the lost, the hurting, the brokenhearted. We can know that it's God's will to extend love and mercy and grace to everyone. We see in Jesus God's will that all of these things are extended to everyone. In other words, there's nobody excluded from the love of God. Amen? How many know that's a good thing? Because if people were excluded, you would probably be excluded. But thank God we're not, amen? I know I would be excluded. I've done some dumb stuff. Jesus would probably be like, so, but you know what? I've been washed. I've been cleaned. I've been saved. All those things are who I used to be, not who I am now, amen? Because I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus' work was thorough. It was complete. How about this one? This one, the stuff that, that people don't want to hear. When we see Jesus rebuke, and his disciples and the crowd for lacking faith. We can know that it's God's will for us to have and exercise faith. You see, the things that we see Jesus doing, we know these are the things that are God's will because why? He can do nothing on his own. Everything he does is because he sees the Father doing it. We also see, because of this, that we know that God has made known his will to Jesus. And this is not just some divine, uh, not some divine mystery, right? That's one of the things that drives me crazy is when, when people say, God works in mysterious ways. Oh, that phrase drives me crazy. He doesn't work in mysterious ways. We see, he's made his will known in the scripture and Jesus, he doesn't work. Like when people say like, oh, this person died from cancer. So, you know, it must've been God's will. God works. No, that wasn't God's will for that person to die of cancer. Cancer is never God's will. God's not working in mysterious ways. What there is, there's an enemy that, that is prowling around trying to lie, kill and destroy. It wasn't God's will. It never was God's will. So one of the things that, that uh, I have a real problem with this, this idea that everything that happens is God's will. Because I, I just don't believe that that's true. There are a lot of things that happen that are not God's will. Now, God is aware of these things happening, and he's allowing many of these things to happen, but it's not because it's his will for them to happen. And there's plenty of things in the scripture that aren't his will. 
I can think of a couple off the top of my head. When, when uh, uh, they made David or they made Saul king of, of Israel. I mean, over and over, God said, no, listen, I don't want you to be like the other people. I don't want you to have a king. You don't need this. Why are you looking for this? Aren't, aren't I enough? That was never God's will for Israel to have a king. But he let them have a king. Certainly it wasn't God's will for anybody to sin, but people still sin. There's a lot of things that happen that aren't God's will. But the reality is, is that we can see his will in his word. It's not a mystery. And we also see in this brief one verse, or a couple verses here, how many is it? Just, yeah, one verse. We see some of the mystery of the Trinity in action as well. And when I say mystery, I don't mean like it might or might not be, or like we're not sure of how it's going on. When I, what I say is uh, because the scriptures clearly teach the Trinity. I've gone through it before. I have like a, a five-week uh, five message on, on how the, the Trinity is, is, is presented in the Scripture. It's, it's what the Bible teaches, even though if we don't have a full grasp of it. And the reason we don't have a, a full grasp of it, and it's the reason why I call it the mystery of how the Trinity works, is because we don't have anything to relate to uh, of things that are uh, the idea that there is three individual persons, but only one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit but all three of them are God. And we're, that blows our mind because there's nothing in this world that we can relate that to. It's also why we have such a hard time with eternity because everything that we know is based on time and the passage of time, but eternity is, is, is beyond time. So we have a hard time understanding eternity because we can only relate to things in, in, in time. But we do see how it plays out, even if we don't, fully understand the mechanism, if you will, the inner workings of how the Trinity works. We do see it plan out because we do have the, the three distinct persons, but operating under one will because they're one God. So we have Jesus acting as his role as judge in this case, but it's in accordance with the will of the Father because they have the same will. I like the way that the Life Application New Testament Commentary says it. They said this, the distinctions within the persons of the Trinity allow each to perform certain specific functions, but the divine unity of God means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each do what the others would do if the roles were changed. Because there are one God, one will. So we see the same will being acted. God, Jesus can only do the will of the Father because they have the same will. Even though we have distinct roles, we have one God. Amen? Didn't know there was all that in this little verse, did you? And now we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about today. In John 5, 31 through 32, it says, uh, Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. As we mentioned in the introduction, Jesus has made some pretty, at least from a human perspective, spectacular claims. And Jesus was a Jew. How many of you guys know that Jesus was a Jew? Born and raised a Jew in a Jewish family. So that means that he knew a little bit of Jewish law. And in Deuteronomy 17, 16, it says, On the evidence of two, or two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. 
Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not be sufficient against a person for any crime, for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus knows this, and it could be argued that if Jesus was the only one testifying to his claims, that uh, he might be a little cuckoo, a little bit crazy, and there's no reason to believe him if it was only his word supporting his claims. Now that's interesting. You guys have ever heard of the, the three L's argument for Jesus? The, the thing is, is that, uh, and this is, this is one of the things, you either have to believe that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic, he's crazy, or he's the Lord. Yeah, three options. That's the only options he gives. He can't just be some good guy because he, he made some spectacular claims. He never claimed to just be a prophet, to be a good teacher. He claimed to be the Messiah, to be God. So you, the, this option that Jesus was just a great man or just a great teacher, it's not an option that he gives us. If he makes these claims, which we already talked about, the claims that he made, the only options we have is he's either crazy, he's a lunatic, he's a liar, and the truth is, is there's no evidence, biblical or extra-biblical, that Jesus was ever anything but, but truthfully. Nobody ever, nobody ever makes the claim that Jesus was a liar. Or he's the Lord. That's our options. But it could have been argued if it was just him testifying by himself, the people that are around. Like we already talked about, if we saw somebody claim it today, we would, that would be our first instinct, is that they're a little off the rocker. So Jesus, uh, this... The truth is, is that uh, anybody making the claims that, that Jesus did, they would think is crazy. So Jesus knew that they, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish people at the time, would only accept his claims if there were additional witnesses to what he was saying. Because otherwise, without additional witnesses, like I said, they see him as crazy, or maybe they just thought he was a little bit arrogant, self-supporting, wanted to puff himself up to see what he could get, what he could gain. Probably a little of both. And then we're going to see one of the major themes that we're going to see really in the Gospel of John is this idea of witness. The word witness is used 47 times in the Gospel of John, either as a noun or as a verb, either to witness or being a witness. But it's used 47 times in the Gospel of John. The word witness is only used 136 times in the New Testament. 77 of those times are in John's writing, either in the Gospel of John, uh, his epistles, or the book of Revelation. So 77 out of, one, out of 136 is in John's writing. He kind of likes this word. This is a theme of his, this idea of being a witness. So Jesus is going to begin to share. He says, listen, I get it. If I bear a witness about myself, then my testimony is not true. What he's, he's not saying that if he's the only one, his testimony isn't true. He's giving them in reference to what they would believe, in reference to what the law would require. He's not saying that if it was only me, I'd be a liar. Truth is, is if there was not another witness, period, it was only Jesus saying it. There was no witness. Matter of fact, if everybody disagreed with him and called him a liar and said all these other things, it wouldn't change the fact that Jesus' words were true. So that's not what he's saying. He's not saying if it was only me, I'd be a liar. But look, I have proof. Now you can't say his words would be true regardless. But what he's doing is he's talking about in the frame of reference, this context, dealing with talking to the Jewish people and what they would expect and require. He says, listen, I get it. If it was just myself, I understand that you would believe that my words weren't true. He says, but there is another who bears witness about me. And now we're going to start as Jesus begins to talk about their witnesses. And the first witness that we're going to see is one we've already looked at multiple times in this journey through the book of John. And that's John the Baptist. 
In John 5, 33 through 35, it says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. So like I said, Jesus' first witness, the first person he calls to the stand is John the Baptist. And one of the things that I want you to think about as we're looking at this is what makes a good witness? Like if you were to go to court and you need somebody to testify on your behalf, what would you be looking for to make a good witness? I can think of two primary things that you need to have a good witness. One, they need to have some direct knowledge of whatever the heck you guys are talking about, right? Like if I was going to court saying that I, I didn't run a red light, you know, and I'm going to bring a witness, and I, I called Joseph, but Joseph was out of town that week, like he wouldn't make a good witness. Like he wasn't even there, right? So the first thing we need is someone to have firsthand knowledge of what's going on. John the Baptist ticks that box, right? Because he's right there with it. God's been speaking to him. He's met with Jesus. The dove came out of heaven. Like, I mean, he was right there in the thick of it. And the next thing is, is they need to tell the truth. And we know that John told the truth about what he saw as well. You see, John the Baptist's entire purpose was to be a witness. That was why he came. He's the one who was there to tell the Jews about their Messiah who was coming. And he bore witness that the Jews would need to believe in Jesus and that Jesus was the light. That was in John 1, 6-8. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. So that's John's entire purpose. And that's what he did. He came. He did bear witness that Jesus was their Messiah as well. And John 1, 29 through 34 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That was John the Baptist's purpose. And I think he makes a pretty good witness because he was there. He saw what was going on. And he declared, he bore witness to Jesus being who he said he was. And then Jesus goes on to say, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, because what we just talked about, Jesus doesn't need the testimony of man. Jesus is still going to be Jesus. He's still going to be God. What he says is still going to be true, even if nobody agrees with him. So John's testimony wasn't actually for John's benefit, or sorry, for Jesus' benefit. John's testimony wasn't there for Jesus. John's testimony wasn't there so that one day Jesus would be able to say, but John said I'm, I'm him, right? Doesn't that count for something? It was never for Jesus. The, the reason why John was testifying was so that they may be saved. The whole purpose of John was to point people towards Jesus. Now it is a witness. It is evidence, but that's not why John did all these things so that, so that Jesus would have someone in his back pocket and go, see, I told you. It was always for them to get them saved. Jesus pointed to John's testimony right now 
more so for their benefit. And the interesting thing is, is when John came, it says right here that, that he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. When John came, they all rejoiced. They were excited that they were living in the time that the Messiah was finally going to come. They had been studying scriptures. They had been looking and waiting for him and now they're hearing that he's going to be on his way. And they rejoiced, even though they were often rebuked by John, they still rejoiced because they thought at last Israel's enemies were finally going to be destroyed. It's funny when I look at this, their expectation was what happened, just in the wrong context. Right? Israel's enemies were destroyed, except for it wasn't Rome, it was sin and death. Which, if they would have took a little time evaluating, were much bigger enemies than Rome. Amen? So exactly what they thought was going to happen happened, just not the way that they thought it would happen. So John was this lamp burning brightly that they rejoiced in, but he wasn't the light. He was burning. He was shining. He was brilliant, but he wasn't the light. His testimony only illuminated the path to the true light, which was Jesus Christ. His testimony pointed towards Jesus. And Jesus' testimony is so much greater than that of John's. Amen? That's why in uh, 5.36-38 it says, But the testimony that I give is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, I bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So now Jesus is going to share with us his second and third witnesses. His second witness is his very own works, the works that he's doing. And his third witness is actually the testimony of the Father himself. So John the Baptist's ministry was actually a pretty amazing ministry. He had a huge following. People were coming out to be baptized by John. They were looking forward to the Messiah coming. But uh, even though his ministry was very effective and amazing and he was a powerful voice for God, uh, John only preached and baptized. He preached and he baptized. That was it. He performed no miracles. He performed no signs, as John would call them. In John 10, 41, we'll, we'll get there probably in a few months. It says, And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. So John's ministry didn't have any supernatural miracles in it. He just preached, told them to repent. It was a powerful voice for God. And obviously he had, he had revelation from God about what was to come, so he was a great voice for God, but he didn't perform any miracles. Now in contrast, Jesus comes preaching and teaching as well, with even greater authority because he's Jesus. In addition, he's doing miracles. And one of the things that uh, caught my ear this morning as Joseph was praying in the prayer ministry is he said, he said, Father, let us see miracles to confirm your word. You see, the miracles and all of those things, I think they're, they're more about for the believers to encourage their belief, to confirm the word that they already know. It's not about, typically miracles aren't about getting people saved. 
They're about confirming his word to those of us who already believe. But Jesus comes and he's, he's doing miracles and, and, and he says, and these miracles actually confirm who he is. They are signs, as John likes to call them. They're evidence. They're just big giant signposts pointing towards Jesus, saying that this is the Son of God. And these, these miracles, these signs, they made it evident that Jesus was sent by the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a, a pretty good indication that, that God sent you. And the truth is, is that these, these miracles were already prophesied in the Old Testament, that the, that the Messiah would fulfill them. Isaiah 33, 5-6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If you've been reading ahead, you know that at some point, um, and I don't remember which gospel it's in, but it, it, it talks about uh, uh, John sends to Jesus and says, are you the one that sent me? And how does Jesus, res- or are you the one we're waiting for? And how does Jesus respond? He said, go back and tell John that the, that the, that the lame leap, that the eyes of the blind are open. The, the very, this evidence saying, listen, these things point to who I am. So Jesus' works were clear evidence that the Father was with him and that he was working through him. That's what he says here. He says, listen, the, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me and prove that the Father has sent me. And the worst part is, is these, these men, they knew the word, they knew the scriptures, so they should have made these connections, but they, they weren't. And Jesus actually is going to talk about that in a little bit. In addition, in verse 37, it says here, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Here's just a few examples of this if we want to talk about God himself bearing witness. At Jesus' baptism, we read about it in the Gospel of John. Here it is in Matthew 3.17. Behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God himself just endorsed Jesus. The transfiguration is another one. Matthew 17, 5, it says, And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said to them, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. After Jesus enters Jerusalem, right before he's crucified, in John 12, 27 through 28, it says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The resurrection itself was evidence of God's approval of what Jesus was doing. Romans 1, 3-4 says, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We already saw that that Jesus' very own works God enabling him to do those things and giving him those works to do was evidence that God was endorsing him. John 3, 2 says this, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? Because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And then finally, in the hearts and minds of people, God testifies to who Jesus is. John six forty five says, It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, only some of these things that I've just shared with you have happened at this point in time, right? Many of the things I just shared, the resurrection, all that stuff, that happens after this. 
But it's clear that the Father is already testifying of Jesus. We see it in his works, and we know that he's already testifying in the hearts and minds of people that this is my son. But the Jewish leaders were struggling to hear the Father's testimony because they unfortunately didn't have his word abiding in their hearts. That's what Jesus says. He says, look, the Father you sent me has, has borne witness about me, but his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. If they had his word abiding in him, they would have believed the one he had sent. So because of this, he's, they've never seen or heard God's voice. But if they would just receive the one who God sent, this would all change for them. You know, one of the things that, that we often don't see when all this stuff is happening is that none of these people are stuck where they are. If they just repent and have a, a, a change in attitude, a change in their mind, things would change for them. And that's true for us. That's true for everybody who's not a believer, and that's true for us and the things that we get all wrapped up and concerned in. Sometimes we just need to take a step back, repent, and get moving on the right path again. And then in verse 39 through 40, it says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the next witness that we have, the fourth witness, is the scriptures themselves bear witness to who Jesus is. And here's the thing, the Jews, they studied the scriptures. Your, your average Jew back in those days were much more likely to be, or were, were, were more than likely, much better Bible students than we are today. And also the Jewish leaders, particularly those who, who were, were teaching, the rabbis and all those things, they really knew the scriptures. That, that, was, that was their business. You know, Jewish teachers and leaders, they devoted their entire life to studying the scriptures. And Jesus says that, you know, that they do this because they think that in them that they have eternal life, that they're going to find eternal life in those words. And they even believed that those who didn't have the law were under a curse. The irony is, is that they were looking for eternal life in the scriptures and the scriptures provided the answer. The scriptures pointed to Jesus, but they just missed it right over their head. The Jews refused to go to Jesus to receive the very eternal life that they were looking for. They were hoping that dedication to study and learning the law, learning the scripture would be enough to secure for them eternal life. But they completely missed the point. And the truth is, is if we're not careful, we can fall into that very same trap. We can get so wrapped up in reading the Bible and doing what the Bible says. We can get so wrapped up in the doing that we miss the entire point. Now, I want to be clear. Reading your Bible, studying your Bible is very, very good. Don't stop doing it. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I also want to be clear that being obedient to the Scripture, being obedient to God and what He says in His Scripture is very, very good. You should not stop doing it. But it's the position from where you do these things that's important. You see, if you don't do them from within Christ, if you're not doing them from a position of being in Christ, then you're missing the point. Then you're just going through the motions. You're just doing the things. And the things aren't what save you. The things aren't what give you eternal life. 
It's putting your trust in Jesus Christ. The scripture, the entirety of the scripture, it all points to Jesus. That's where we're supposed to go to receive that free gift of life. And then because of what he's done for us, because of what he's accomplished in us, because he took that old life away, gave us a brand new one, then we continue to study and we continue to be obedient to his word, not in order to gain his favor, but because we already have it. Because he's already given so much and how can you respond any other way to the one who's given you everything? So just like them, we have to be careful to not fall in the trap because the Bible is not the end goal. The Bible just points you to Jesus. Amen? And in verse 39 through... Sorry, verse 41 through 43, it says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Just once again, Jesus is really reiterating that his glory is not dependent on whether or not people believe in him. Jesus' glory is not dependent on that. One of the, the, the funniest things that uh, I like to say to people who say that, uh, hey, you know what, I don't believe in God. I go, that's okay, I don't believe in atheists. Like, what do you mean you don't believe in atheists? You have one standing right here. I'm like, oh, you mean something can exist even if I don't believe in it? <laughs> something to think about. You see, that's it. God's existence isn't because we believe in him. Jesus isn't who he says he is just because people bear witness, because people believe in him. His credentials are not based on the response of the people. Even if nobody believed, he would still be the Messiah. He would still be the Son of God. He would still be the one that took sin upon himself. But because these men did not have the love of God in them, because they were more focused and loved more their positions, and they loved more their religion... Because of that, they couldn't accept Jesus as being the Son of God. He was the Messiah. Jesus came in the Father's name. We've just given a bunch of, of, of evidence that, that, he, that he came in the Father's name, like they should know these things, but they still didn't receive him. But he says, listen, I came in the Father's name and you don't receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What he's talking about here is, listen, I come in the Father's name. I come with all the evidence that shows I am He, but you don't receive me. But if somebody else comes and fits the caricature of who you think the Messiah should look like, then you'll receive Him. But if I come in the Father's name with all this evidence showing that I am Him because I don't look like what you expected the Messiah to be, you don't receive me. And this actually happened. In AD 132, Simeon ben Kosaba claimed to be the Messiah. So this is 100 years after Jesus. He comes and says, no, no, I'm the Messiah. And he was upheld by Akiba, who was the most eminent rabbi of the time. You see, he came in his own name, and they were willing to support him, but Jesus came in the name of the Father, and they rejected him. And Jesus goes on in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Jesus is going to deal with one of the problems that these folks have. He points out probably their biggest problem. They were so busy looking for acceptance from one another, right? He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another 
and do not seek the glory that comes from God. They were so busy looking for acceptance and accolades from their peers, from their fellow Jewish leaders, from their fellow Jewish congregation, or I'm not, do they call the, the people in a, in a synagogue a congregation? I'm not sure if they use the same word, but those people, they were looking for accolades from them. They were looking for approval from them, from their friends, from other, other teachers. They weren't actually seeking out the will of the Father. They weren't seeking glory that comes from the Father. And here's the thing. If they made a claim contrary to what everybody else was saying, then then they would be ostracized. They would be looked at poorly. They could be rejected by the group. So instead of making any claim that was different than anybody else's, they they just went went with the flow. They went with what everybody else was doing so they wouldn't be rejected. So instead of looking to do what would honor God, they were looking for the approval of men. Church, this is another trap we have to be very careful not to fall into. Looking just for the approval of men. And this isn't just for, for pastors and, and, and church leadership, although it does apply to them. They should be especially careful about these things because the truth is for those of us who, who teach and those of us who lead, we're held to a greater level of accountability when we stand before God for those things that we're teaching and, and, and leading. But the truth is, is it doesn't just go for church leaders and, and teachers. We all have to be careful we're not seeking the approval of men. You know, and it can look in the opposite way too, right? We, we don't want to, we were just talking about it in Bible study on Wednesday. This, you know, one of the, the subtle things that we do where we're really just looking for the approval of man is, is, is one, we, we don't want to share the gospel with, with anybody because we might offend them. You know, we don't want to share with anybody and, and that's, that's looking for the approval of man instead of the approval of God. Or, or one of the things that I've always said drives me crazy is, is, is people that, uh, you know, don't preach to their kids. You know, I want them to, to grow and make their own decision. I'm not going to force my religion on them. You know, and that just drives me crazy because um, if you don't preach to your kids, somebody else will. You know, and if you really believe what you say you believe, if you believe that they're going to hell without Jesus, man, that's the only thing I'd be worried about teaching my kids. But instead, we're seeking the approval of men or our kids or we want somebody to go, oh, that's, that seems like such a reasonable way to raise your kids. Good on you. We're looking for the approval of men and not God. Our goal is to honor and to please God, not to seek the approval of men. And sometimes this will be uncomfortable. We're fortunate that we live in the United States because for many others, it's not just uncomfortable, it requires their life to honor and to serve God. And then we'll wrap it up right here in verses 45 through 47. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. This is Jesus' fifth witness in this section. He says, There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? You see, they had set their hope on eternal life and, and what Moses had wrote. That's the scripture that they were using. They set their, their hope on him. But the thing is, is that they weren't listening to what he was saying. Jesus would not need to stand before the Father and accuse these men. There was already one in line ready to do so. And that was Moses. You see, the Jews, they respected and they honored Moses. 
And they should have believed what he said, what he wrote. The thing is, is if they, if they did believe Moses, then they would have by default believed Jesus because Moses wrote about Jesus. He wouldn't even need all these extra witnesses. Moses should have been enough to point them towards Jesus because Moses wrote about him. And Jesus didn't really point out any specific scripture about how Moses wrote about him. Although there are many specific ones if you want to find them. But it is, the reason for this is probably because the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the scripture that they had at that time pointed to Jesus. It all did. He didn't have to point out one specific instance when the whole daggum book did. And now we have the conundrum. How will you believe in the one that Moses wrote of if you won't even believe him who did the writing? This reminds me of the story of when Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man, right? So Lazarus was, was poor and, and, and begged his whole life and he died and now he's sitting in Abraham's bosom. He's, he's on his way to heaven. But then the rich man dies and he's in torment. He's in Hades and he's, he's just begging even for just a drop of water on his tongue because it's so bad. He's in torment and he says to Abraham, hey, hey, listen, I, I get it. I'm where I'm at right now, but can you send Lazarus to go preach to my brothers? so that they'll know about this torment. And what does Abraham say? He says, why would they believe Lazarus when they haven't believed the prophets? The ones that he had already sent. Why would they all of a sudden believe Lazarus, but not, if they're not going to believe them, they're not going to believe Lazarus either. You see, if they're not going to believe Moses, they're not going to believe Jesus. But when these Jewish men are called to get, are going to be called to give an account and they will because the truth is every single one of us will be called to be given to give an account when they're called to give an account they can't say that hey we didn't know because moses will be right there saying but i told you amen so today we see that jesus didn't come just making these incredible claims on his own initiative and his own accord now, he was who he was, and like I said, that wouldn't change no matter if we believed in him or not, but there was plenty of evidence that Jesus was who he says he was. And they had every opportunity to believe. But church, we just need to make sure that, that we're putting our faith in Jesus. And the good news is, is that uh, it's just like, like uh, when Jesus told Doubting Thomas, he says, you believe because you see but blessed are those who believe and don't see. You see, the great thing is, is that I hope you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you may not have known all the stuff that we just talked about today. These should just encourage your faith. But the truth is, is, is we don't have to have all these witnesses and evidences. Jesus is who he is because he's God, he's faithful, he's true. But I thank God that we do have these things to encourage our faith, to help us to, to just have our faith even strengthened. And church, we just need to make sure that we don't fall into some of those traps, but keep our eyes on him. Amen.